The Fanboy, episode 105. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 105th edition of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, I'm pretty excited today. I'm pretty excited today because something that I've been quietly stressing about for almost two years, uh, I was able to get some pretty awesome news on today. (laughs) Basically, back in early 2008, I switched the host for this show. I switched from SoundCloud to Podbean. And in doing so, I lost the first 47 episodes. You know, if you go to the feed for this podcast, even though we are at episode 105, it actually starts at episode 48. So I lost all those episodes. You know, SoundCloud just removes everything once you break, you know, once you cancel your membership, anything that you had up there is just gone in the wind. And at the time, I'm like, all right, well, I've got all those episodes backed up somewhere. And, you know, one day I'll get around to just re-uploading and backdating them so that the podcast feed can be complete. One day I'll get to that. And then a couple of months later, in the middle of 2018, the external drive where I had had all those episodes backed up fell and broke. (laughs) And I'm laughing, but I was not happy about it at the time because I was suddenly unable to access those files. So I've sort of pushed on for this last year and a half with this kind of uh, monkey on my back of like, wait a minute, the first 50 episodes of this show, which is, you know, 50 to 60 hours of content that I spent hundreds of hours producing and putting together for my listeners is all just gone. And it was honestly one of the reasons that it took me a while to get you the centennial episode, the 100th edition, which is only four episodes ago. You might recall that it was kind of scheduled to arrive somewhere in June of this year, and it didn't end up arriving for another two months. And part of that was because as part of the centennial celebration of this show, as part of the hitting that 100th milestone, I really wanted to be able to dig through the show's history and be able to get some clips and kind of do some kind of historical things, kind of bring up like takes of mine from back in the day and how things have evolved. And, you know, I wanted to be able to dig in to some of this show's history because let's face it, there's some history now. It feels pretty cool to say it. You know, in February, which is only two months away, this show celebrates three years, three years old of of, of me trying my very best to organize my thoughts in a way that is entertaining to you, the listener. Three years of just pouring all of my love and passion into this. And, you know, now to have basically the first year of that back in the fray is exciting. And uh, I guess I just kind of spoiled it, but yes, I found my old episodes and they weren't on any resource of mine. I just kind of took a shot in the dark to see if there were any other websites out there 
that might have actually kept copies of the files because all the podcast apps, as soon as I updated the feed and switched to Podbean, they all just immediately deleted the first 50 episodes. So it's been impossible for me to go anywhere and find a link to download those shows. But I found a foreign website that miraculously has every single episode of this show available for download. It includes even the descriptions that I gave each episode. So what, I'm, what I've begun to do now is uh, I'm starting to backlog the, the podcast. So if you were to go now in the feed, you're, you're going to notice that episodes one, two, and three are now up and available. And they, and they have the, their original dates on them. And, you know, for those of you who give a crap or would be inclined to be like, hmm, there is this old situation that happened. I wonder what Mario thought of it or anything like that. You know, it, just if for any reason, somebody here was a completionist and wanted to be able to dig into the archives, uh, now you'll be able to. And for me, even if nobody does that, it's just a, a personal victory for me to know that all that stuff I produced is, is there and it's back and it's slowly making its way back into the feed and all of that stuff is just not gone forever. That in and of itself is very exciting for me. And as a personal side note, you know, while downloading these, I listened to the beginnings of a few of the early episodes, and it is pretty notable and interesting to hear how much the show has evolved since I first launched it. And uh, yeah, that was just kind of like a fun little uh, personal curiosity on my end. But either way, the first 50 episodes would actually include a couple of bonuses. You know, I have episodes there that are basically long-form reviews of specific movies. Like the week that Justice League came out, I remember I went back and did a whole like DCEU rewatch leading up to it so that I could be ready for it. So there's a there's an episode that's literally just me revisiting Man of Steel. Then there's an episode that's just me revisiting Batman v Superman, but this time the Ultimate Edition. And then there's an episode that's my original take on Justice League, when that film first came out in November of 2017. And it's just interesting also to go back and, and now with everything that we've learned since and the way certain views of mine have evolved since, it's just you know, interesting to have these documents back, these records, these snapshots, these moments in time back. You know, it's, it's, it's just been very rewarding. And what else has been rewarding has been the feedback uh, that you guys have been giving me on the show as of late. You know, th these last couple of episodes have inspired a number of you to find me on Twitter just to let me know that, yeah, you know, you thought the show was good before, but you think it's the best it's ever been lately. And honestly, you know, that vote of confidence and that, you know, that, that encouragement is, uh, you know... It's not falling on deaf ears, and I just want you to know I really appreciate it. I'm glad that you kind of like the groove that I'm settling into, and you like what the show has evolved into, and I'm just preparing to give you more of it, because this is kind of just where I'm at now. This is the format, the tone, the flow, and the feel that feels best for me at this point in time. And the fact that you guys seem to be digging it, uh, well, let's just say that's, uh, that's a huge, huge bonus, because this is basically the show that uh, I can give you right now. So here we go. 
Similar to last week, I'm going to open things up with two quick takes on a couple of trailers that have launched since we last spoke, and then we're going to get into some long-form fun stuff. But yes, there have been, well, there have been a few trailers that have come out, but I want to kind of pinpoint two trailers that have arrived since our last episode. So first things first, Ghostbusters Afterlife. I, this was exactly the kind of trailer that I really dig. See, I, I'm a sucker for any trailer that can present a film that's based on a classic, beloved property and make it feel like it's something wholly new and different and you don't even know what it is until the end of the trailer. You know, where it's kind of like a surprise where like, you know, you watch the first minute and a half and wow, you're like, oh, this looks like a really riveting tale about World War II. And then you find out in the last 30 seconds, what, it's a Gumby movie? I mean, listen, that's never happened. But you know what I mean? I, I, I like those trailers that basically take something familiar, present it to you in a new way, and at the end you realize, oh, wow, this is just the latest version of this thing that I already love. And it's a, it's a new way of enjoying this mythology that I really love. You know, I, I always kind of point to the teaser trailer for Batman Begins. I remember when Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins was beginning its life cycle in the pop culture zeitgeist. The first teaser, you know, unless you were following the internet very closely and you knew exactly what Batman Begins was going to be, you know, if you didn't know that this movie was coming, if you just watched this as a general audience member who doesn't live on the internet trying to find out, you know, when is my next Batman movie coming out, you could watch the beginning of the Batman Begins teaser and not even know it's a Batman movie. It looks like this interesting grown-up adult tale of a guy on a quest and he's becoming a martial artist and he's and he's trying to become a symbol for something. And it's like, it, it, there's no Batman in that trailer at all until he opens up that little, that, that closet and you see the cowl. And that's when all of a sudden you hear everyone in the theater go, oh, this is a Batman movie. So that's all to say that Ghostbusters Afterlife pulled that sort of swerve on me, and I loved it. Now, granted, I knew that it was going to be a Ghostbusters movie because I clicked on a link. Hey, what's the new Ghostbusters trailer? But, you know, I tried to take it in with a fresh set of eyes. I wanted to see, like, if I, if I knew nothing about this property, how would this kind of, you know, uh, unfold itself for me? And watching the Ghostbusters trailer got me supremely excited for the world that Jason Reitman is going to be unfolding for us in 2020. Because it, it's one of these things where it feels new, it feels different, but it absolutely has the DNA of what came before. It respects, honors, and elevates what came before instead of relying on what came before to get you to care about it. You know, that's the difference between like nostalgia pandering or updating something that people feel nostalgic about. You know, those are two very different things. Nostalgia pandering is like, yeah, we have nothing really new to say or do with these characters. So here's just more of what you already know. Bringing something that people are nostalgic to 
you know, Nostalgic 4 back to life is actually pretty cool because it involves creativity. It involves a little bit of risk. It involves basically taking what is old and making it new again without just copying it. You know, it actually takes like an artist with a vision to create that sort of thing. And I just think Reitman is uh, is working on, he, he's going to deliver something very special here because this doesn't seem like some paint by numbers retread. And on top of that, remember, this is a guy who was a serious filmmaker for a while. He, he kind of moved, you know, he, he didn't want to live in his father's shadow. So he went and made a lot of under-the-radar sort of indie films, serious, adult-minded movies. He's not like a franchise guy. He's not a big studio, corporate blockbuster guy. He is a serious filmmaker. And he's already made a respectable name for himself. So he doesn't need to make a Ghostbusters movie to suddenly, you know, break out into the next level and suddenly become more famous. You know, he's already had a lot of success in his own right. So if he's doing this, if he's kind of retracing this hallowed ground and going back to this creation of his father's, it has to be because he has something to say. He had an idea. He had a story that he felt was worth telling. And this teaser lives up to that for me. This tells me that this is going to be an exciting new chapter in the Ghostbusters mythology. And I am all in for it. And what else I'm all in for is the trailer for Wonder Woman 1984. Holy moly. Um, so that arrived on Sunday. And listen, I've made no bones about it. Wonder Woman was my favorite DCEU movie in terms of like the, you know, because we have to speak about it almost like in past tense because the DCEU as we know it has pretty much wrapped up. And we're going to talk more about that later as kind of a follow up to some of what I was discussing last week about the interesting, you know, like canon issues that now exist within, uh, you know, DC on film. But before we get into all that, you know, we have to look at the DCEU as almost like a past tense franchise. And of that original franchise, to me, Wonder Woman was head and shoulders above everything else. That was just my absolute favorite film. To me, it had the best balance of everything. It had a hero I absolutely adored and could get behind and understand. It had deep interesting themes that had a lot to say about the world around it without it being too didactic and preachy and esoteric. It totally kind of straddled that nice line between something that is, you know, a fun action adventure starring in, in a, a likable, relatable hero and being an actual like epic modern myth. So, I loved Wonder Woman, and I've been waiting to finally lay eyes on what the sequel was going to be like, and this trailer delivered for me, and then some. It really had it all, you know, from the music to the plot details that they shared. You know, they gave us the seeds and the crumbs of what the plot is, but they didn't reveal way too much. They gave us intrigue. They introduced us to Pedro Pascal's Maxwell Lord so we can get a sense for what that villain's going to be like. And my goodness, quick sidebar. 
Is anyone having a better time right now than Pedro Pascal? I mean, literally, everyone is obsessed with everything he's doing right now, and it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. You know, I've been a fan of, of, of Mr. Pascal's for years, and... You know, long-time listeners of this show will know that every once in a while, every few months, I'm prone to just have a little tangent about how wonderful and versatile this actor is. And he's been a favorite of mine for, I would, I gotta say, around five years. I've been tracking his career and pulling for him. We're Facebook friends. He's just, he's good people. And I like him as a person because of the stuff he posts, and as an artist, because of the art he creates and what he puts into his performances. So right now, to see this love fest where he's the Mandalorian, I mean, you don't know it yet. All you know is the voice. We haven't seen him without the helmet, and one day, you know, I guess we might. But, you know, he is the Mandalorian, and he's going to be Maxwell Lord in what looks like a dynamite Wonder Woman movie that's probably going to make a ton of money next June. And, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's as a fan of his, as a fan, as a Pedro Pascal fanboy, it's just very exciting to see what's going on with his career right now and to kind of just see it exploding and to see a lot of other people starting to learn what it is that I've kind of seen for years, which is that this guy's a chameleon and he can be anyone, he could be from anywhere, he knows how to morph himself to fit the character, he changes his entire demeanor. You know, Maxwell Lord over there looked nothing like Oberyn, did he? Oberyn from Game of Thrones? Absolutely not. And Oberyn looked nothing like the Armenian boxer he played on the little scene FX series called FX series um, <laughs> Lights Out. You know, I, or, it, and that Armenian boxer with all the tattoos and the crazy hairstyle and the Armenian accent looked absolutely nothing like the young lawyer he played on The Good Wife. And I, it was working on the set of The Good Wife where I got to meet him and, and you know, then we ended up Facebook friends. But like, you know, that, that series, that character looked nothing to me like the Armenian boxer. And what was interesting to me was I was watching Lights Out every week while also working on The Good Wife, and I didn't make the connection. I just, I kept wondering, why does this lawyer guy seem familiar to me? And then I'm looking at his name. I looked him up. I'm like, oh, wow, he has an ethnic last name. I never would have even thought he was Latino. And then I looked him up, and I realized he's the Armenian boxer on Lights Out. Sorry for this tangent, but I just... I, I am a Pedro Pascal fanboy, and this is just really exciting to see basically the world starting to understand what kind of a mega talent this guy is. But I digress. So we learned a little bit about his Maxwell Lord in this teaser. We learned a little bit about Kristen Wiig's Cheetah, even though not really in the Cheetah form, but we got to see kind of, I guess, where her character begins her arc in this movie. And, you know, as all things now, I, I, I'm curious to see what comes next, right? That's what a good teaser should do. It should tease you. It shouldn't give you all of it. It should give you just enough to get you to want to pursue it further. And now I have those images in my head. I have Maxwell Lord clutching that weird rock, that crystal. And, you know, we've been hearing him promise to people that you can get anything you want. And then we see him holding that in his darkened office. And he says, now I'm going to take what I want. And now I want to know, well, what's this freaking rock? 
Why? What, what, what are these abilities he seems to have? How is Steve Trevor back, you know, in a narrative sense? Obviously, you know, we all know that Chris Pine's back and a lot of us saw all the set pictures of him walking around in a tracksuit and a fanny pack. So that part wasn't a surprise. But while watching the teaser, I noticed they don't go out of their way to explain why he's back. And I'm glad. I kind of hope we don't find out really much at all until we see the movie itself. But as a teaser, it was very well structured. It was very well formatted in a way that, you know, it, it, it reminds you of what you enjoyed about Wonder Woman, but it updated it. It brought it into a totally different era. It even did like a role reversal where now instead of her being the fish out of water like she was in the first movie where Steve kind of had to explain to her what modern society was like, now, now Steve is the fish out of water and there's a whole role reversal where she's telling him what stuff is and I can't wait to see more stuff like that develop. I want to see them walking around that mall that looks just like the mall that was in season three of Stranger Things. You know, th there's so many things in there that I'm just like, this movie... Oh, and by the way, come on. Can somebody just, like... The next time you see someone online say, oh, they're ripping off the Thor Ragnarok letters, or oh, this is just Thor Ragnarok. Um, guys, the font... That they that they that they use in this teaser, that three D zooming font. I've got news for you. Thor Ragnarok didn't invent that. You know what did invent that? Superman the movie in nineteen seventy eight, directed by Richard Donner, the very first DC film. So if Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four is doing it, I got news for you. They're honoring DC's legacy on film. They're not trying to, quote-unquote, rip off Thor Ragnarok. I mean, please, learn a little bit about history before you sound off on stuff and sound like an idiot. But I digress once again. This teaser is, I think, kind of perfectly placed to do what it's doing right now. It's creating buzz, and it's going to bring in... All kinds of people. Because even this morning, I sat down with my eight-year-old daughter, and before taking my kids to school, I showed both of them, but I wanted her to see more than anything. Because when we all saw Wonder Woman, my son was only like three, and I don't know how closely connected he is to it, but my daughter really loved it. So the three of us sat on the couch, and we watched the teaser for Wonder Woman 1984 together. And I wanted to see what she'd say. And she just sat there with her jaw on the floor, eyes giant glowing and transfixed and like holding back the biggest smile because she's just taking it all in. And then when it ended, she looked at me and she said, I have to see that daddy. And I'm like, don't worry, honey, we're going to catch it next June. Um, you know, so kids can look at it and love it. Grown-ups like me can look at it and love it. And even in terms of its appeal from, a, from an aesthetic standpoint, you know, Patty Jenkins does this wonderful job of merging, you know, what was kind of the established visual look of DC on film that, 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 you know, that Zack Snyder established with this new continuity in 2013. You know, she was able to take a lot of Snyder's interesting style even in this trailer you see there's that moment where she 
um, I don't know what you call it, but she cocks the gun that's in someone's hand so that the bullet flies out in that super slow-mo and then she hits it at super speed with her gauntlet. You know, it's that like speed ramping stuff that a lot of people love, you know, Zack Snyder for. And also that very sort of like when she's swinging from lightning bolt to lightning bolt using the lasso of truth. I mean, it's such an unbelievably cool visual, but it also like it, it it's mythological. It's huge in scope. It looks excellent. You know, it looks like awe-inspiring and I can't wait to watch that on like an IMAX screen with the sound all around me because that's going to be an unbelievable little set piece. You can tell it visually, it looks gorgeous. And to me, like that sort of grandiose mythological imagery is absolutely in line with, you know, the, the visual flair that Snyder brought to things early on. Because remember, folks, while I may not be the you know, Zack Snyder fan much, um, his visuals, you'll never hear me say a bad word about. His visuals are amazing, beautiful. And I'm glad to see that some of what he brought visually to the table still living on. You know, that, 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 that should kind of give solace to those of you who are still sad and lamenting and mourning that the Snyder era is over. Because while it may be over, his influence is still very apparent. You could still see it right here in Wonder Woman 1984. And who knows? You know, there could be later films that, I mean, you could even argue that in Aquaman, you could still see some of Snyder's visual imprint. You know, grant, granted, James Wan painted with a, comple a completely different color palette, but there were there was definite elements of, the, of, of Aquaman where you could see that this had Snyder's films in its DNA a little bit, which is this grand, very mythological visual aesthetic where like you could practically take a freeze frame of some of these scenes, just take an isolated freeze frame, print it, frame it, and put it up, and it looks like artwork, you know? So that still lives on. So for those of you who are sad about it, you know, at least, at least you could still see his handiwork on the screen in some way. Because Patty Jenkins in this film, you know, she continues to make Wonder Woman her own. She continues to take this mythology in a direction that is is exciting and new. You know, I love I love it being in the 80s. I love the music and the fashion and I love the period in time that it's going to seemingly, you know, uh, talk about a little bit. You know, 1984, you know, it is it's just there's a lot of political overtones, I should just say, that I wonder how they're going to, you know, deal with all that. And I feel like Patty Jenkins, you know, she already dealt with World War One, and had a lot to say about the concept of war in the first film. And now in this one, where she actually had a hand in the scripting process, I can't wait to see what Patty Jenkins has to say about where the world and America was in the middle of the 80s, in the middle of its Cold War with Russia. You know, back when we understood unanimously that Russia was the enemy, by the way, I feel like, you know, Patty Jenkins just understands that these movies can and should be more. You know, th that these movies, just like the comic books, should have something to say about the world around them. 
You know, that's something that kind of gets lost sometimes. People are like, oh, I wish they would take, you know, keep the politics out of entertainment and blah, blah, blah. And it's like comic books have inherently always been a snapshot of society. They've been some sort of response or reaction to what's happening. That's why when I see comic book movies that don't really seem to be about anything and it's just like some trivial entertainment or it's just some sort of empty, hollow, fizzy experience. It's like, all right, well, that's, you know, that's, 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 you know, it's bubblegum. Thanks for giving me two hours of just a little distraction. But I love it when my superhero stories have something to say about real life because in a way, it makes those heroes actual crusaders for justice in real life. Because in the movie, they're fighting fictional enemies. But if their movies can instill people with hope and inspiration, and if it can call to attention injustices that are happening around us and inspire its audience to try to deal with those enemies, you know, it takes some action. You know, if, it, if at any point a film can get someone to go, hmm, what would Wonder Woman do in this situation? What would Peter Parker do in this situation? What would Superman do in this situation? If any of these films can pass along you know, lessons like that, that inspire real people to do really good things, then in a way it honors the hero and it makes the hero in the movie actually do something heroic in real life. You know, that, that's what I love about a superhero movie that actually has something to say. And Patty Jenkins seems to be the kind of filmmaker who has stuff to say. And I just, and that's why, by the way, I would love it if she stuck around in this genre for a while. I don't know if she's just a tourist like other great directors have been. You know, I don't know if she's planning on pulling like a Nolan where, okay, I'm going to make my three and then I'm getting the hell out of there. Or if she could see herself making superhero movies on and off for the next 20 years, because I, you know, I will sign up for a Patty Jenkins superhero movie every couple of years, any day of the week. And, I, and I've said it on Twitter, but I'm going to reiterate it here. I would hand her a Justice League movie in a heartbeat. And if somehow she were interested in doing a Superman movie, oh my God. So, you know, I really hope she sticks around because Patty Jenkins brings the goods. Patty Jenkins delivers the goods so far. It seems, yeah, it's so far so good on Wonder Woman 1984. And, you know, perhaps a reason to be confident that she isn't just a tourist and that perhaps she does feel like, you know what? I've got, uh, I've got work to do here. You know, I'm very impressed with how mapped out and how far out she's bumping the world of Wonder Woman and how much thought she's put into this. She doesn't seem to simply be approaching this like movie by movie. Like, like you know, like now I'm going to figure out what to do next and figure it out on the fly. You know, she's in, in some recent interviews, she shed some light on what she's been thinking about. And I'm going to just share with you some quotes that I think are exciting. First of all, on the state of Wonder Woman 1984 itself, because it's, it's, it's pretty much already complete, and yet we're six months out from its release, which is funny to think, by the way, because the original release date was right around now. So it means that it would have very easily 
been able to have been released later this you know, month, but you know, maybe it's a good thing that they saved it for June. I mean, I'm, I'm not here to debate that, but either way, the point is the movie's done and Patty Jenkins has some stuff to say about that. So she says, we're done. The movie is done because it doesn't come out for a few months for the first time in my career, which is so great. I was able to say, hey guys, can you let me fiddle with this? Can you, you let me fiddle with that? So I'm fiddling, but the movie is technically done. I, I'm actually sitting around. Usually you just end and you're done. This time I'm actually sitting around and saying, what if I can do a different version of that shot? Can I try a different one? It's incredible. I'm sitting in an editing room right now playing and seeing if I can pitch back something that I like better. That's incredible. I've never gotten to do that in my life. And if we don't change anything, we don't change anything. But if we find something we like, then we'll do that. You know, it's pretty incredible. So she sounds like she's kind of having an unbelievably positive experience working on this. And I think that's a big point to make here. And there's a reason I read that quote, because we all know that DC directors haven't always had the easiest time, right? And it's nice to hear Patty Jenkins seems to be like just in her zone right now. She has all the time and all the resources she needs to make the best possible film and to start mapping out a future that makes sense based on her, you know, what she's building here. You know, it's it, it should be comforting and reassuring to know that directors who work for Warner Brothers slash DC don't have to be looking over their shoulders so much anymore. You know, that's, that, that, that's got to be pretty neat, that the creators are getting to create. And she went on to say, uh, we actually already know the whole story to Wonder Woman 3. And then some, because there is an Amazon spinoff as well. And so we already have it all mapped out. It's just a matter of, will we change our minds and when? And that, that's pretty epic, right? Because it means that, yes, there are plans and no, it doesn't look like she's going anywhere. So, you know, maybe she is going to stick around for a while and how lucky are we for that? Uh, another quote, you know, in terms of the setting for, you know, of setting it in 1984 and kind of what she had in mind for that. She said, we literally set out to do something that I may never get to do again, which is to say, let's not make a movie that's funny, ha ha, the 80s. Let's make a grand tentpole like they made in the 80s. So it's as if you, I, I want it to feel like you're seeing a movie in the 80s. So she's trying to hark back to grand 80s tentpoles. I mean, this lady... She's got vision and she takes this seriously. And it's just an amazing time to be a fan of DC on film. Like I mentioned last week, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons to be happy right now. When you ignore, you know, if you look around and realize how much DC has bounced back from some of its recent low points, even with some of those, you know, uh, little canon quirks that I pointed out last week. But I guess, you know, while we're on, the, on, on that subject of canon quirks, you know, uh, Kathy Yan, the director of Birds of Prey, opened up a whole can of worms uh, <laughs> earlier this week in an interview about the film. She, she was talking about, you know, she was asked about 
where this film exists in the canon. You know, specifically, she was asked, you know, how much time has passed between Suicide Squad and Birds of Prey? And what she said was, there is not any known amount of time. No, it kind of exists in a parallel timeline. And a lot of people took that to mean like, wait a minute, what parallel timeline? Is this a, like a multiverse thing? Is she in a different universe? What does this mean? And it's like, listen, she's not being literal. You know, when she says, no, it kind of exists in a parallel timeline. Well, she's really, that, that's just her nice way of saying, I don't give a crap about Suicide Squad. <laughs> you know, I was not beholden to, to Suicide Squad in some way where I had to build off of that. You know, I, you know, actually, let, let me let her speak for herself. Because later on in that, in that same interview, while she's talking about, you know, how Harley Quinn is in this movie and how perhaps she's evolved since we last saw her and so on and so forth, Kathy Ann said, of course, we do keep certain things that are very Harley-esque, like her tattoos have remained the same. Her hair is a little different, but it feels like a natural like arc to her character from Suicide Squad. And she still remains recognizable, I think. So... Clearly, they're not disavowing that Suicide Squad happened, but this is a case where Kathy Yan, and I assume all DC directors from this point forward, and, and really, you know, all DC directors since Suicide Squad came out in 2016, are now being given the leeway to essentially, you know, keep the things that you want to keep from the existing DCEU and ditch the rest. You know, and that's the direction that they're heading right now. And in that way, you know, I spoke about this actually over a year ago, but now we're just seeing more evidence of it. You know, DC on film is going to have a lot more in common with Fox's X-Men franchise than it does with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, and that means that, in other words, the canon is going to be a little flexible. You know, from sequel to sequel, from spinoff to spinoff, things are going to morph. It's not going to always be explained. Kind of like, you know, comic books, when you look at them over a long enough period of time, there's always these tweaks and changes and things that get retconned and revised and old characters get brought back in a, different, in, in a, in a new way and new characters suddenly morph back into their older selves. You know, the comics always kind of have a way of living and breathing with the times and evolving. And I think we're just going to see an accelerated version of that with DC on film. You know, it's going to really feel much more like the Fox X-Men movies in terms of its approach to the franchise concept, not in terms of execution, hopefully. But, you know, and, and, and I say that as a fan of, of several of the Fox X-Men movies and who has a general warmth for those movies because of what they, you know, what they meant for the industry at the time, what they meant for me as I watched them as a young man. But, you know, let's be honest, I hope that the, the only similarities DC and the Fox X-Men franchise really have is their relationship to some sort of ironclad canon, i.e. not having one, you know? And I'm honestly kind of good with that. I'm kind of good with that if it means, you know, if this approach affords its directors the creative freedom to do stuff like what Patty Jenkins did with her, you know, Wonder Woman movie, 
or like, you know, what Joaquin Phoenix did, or, you know, I should say Todd Phillips did with his Joker movie. You know, if, if they're able, if all these filmmakers now are able to just mine the, the extensive DC mythology to tell stories that they think need to be told and are appealing in some way or just, you know, unique and interesting and riveting to them without them having to go, well, wait a minute, does this check out with a movie that came out 10 movies ago that I had nothing to do with making? Like, if, have, if giving them this kind of freedom is what it takes, then I'm all for it. You know, if that's what's going to give us unique and interesting and artistically explosive films, then I, who am I to complain? You know, because Kathy, Kathy Ann also had this to say about Harley. And, and th I think this, uh, you know, th this applies to, you know, how cool it is to give filmmakers like this the freedom with which to explore things like this. She said, I think there's such a duality in Harley Quinn, even in just the blue and the pink and Dr. Harleen Quinzel versus Harley Quinn. Both sides of her are there, and she's still very much the smart doctor that she once was. She's still capable of armchair diagnosing anyone. We say that's part of her superpower. But then she can be so easily manipulated and has really low self-esteem and has all, the, all of the issues that Joker really brought out in her. So I think this is a great opportunity to explore the woman behind Harley Quinn and explore that duality and dive deeper into her psyche. I just think, you know, it's wonderful that Kathy Ann is approaching it from such a cerebral, such a psychological standpoint. That tells me that this has a chance to be another one of these movies that, you know, on the surface is one thing, but actually has some things to say about real life. This sounds like another one of these kind of high-minded comic book movies in a way. And I, I doubt it's going to hit you over the head with anything preachy. But again, it's a filmmaker looking to tackle real things using these over-the-top, larger-than-life characters. And that's what I'm here for. Just like I'm here for Brandon Routh's return as Superman. Okay, we got to talk about this. All right, now look, I'm not going to deliver anything all that substantive in terms of uh, the crisis on Infinite Earth's crossover itself, because remember, I don't watch the Arrowverse shows. I'm not, I don't know what's going on in this particular mythology. I don't know these characters particularly well. So I'm literally just jumping into this series specifically to see Brandon Routh return to Superman. I didn't even watch part one. I just skipped right to part two because I know that's where he is. And in all honesty, I was hardly paying attention to any scene that didn't have him in it. I was kind of fast forwarding and skimming, if I'm being honest. I literally just wanted to see, you know, how he looked, how he sounded, how it came off, what kind of music would they use, what kind of, you know, how are they going to bring him into the story, are they going to acknowledge that this is perhaps, you know, the Christopher Reeve Superman just pushed, you know, decades into the future, are they going to act like this is just a different Kingdom Come Superman that Brandon Routh happens to be playing, you know, I had some questions and it all centered on him, I really don't care about anything else going on in the series, aside from how they're using Brandon as Superman, and I, I was like practically in tears when it started, 
when they came out of the elevator in the Daily Planet and I realized, oh my God, they're about to bump into him. And then, oh, and Lois has that great line as she walks in. She's like, now this is a newspaper. You can tell Lois feels at home here. She feels at home in this Daily Planet. And then she bumps into Clark and Clark sees her and the freaking Lois Lane music swells and he looks at her and this actress, you know, Elizabeth Tulloch, she looks a lot like Margot Kidder's Lois. So when they swell that Lois Lane melody and they're looking at each other, I'm just, I'm swooning. I'm looking at the, t at the, at the TV and my wife is like wondering what's wrong with me. But I mean, she knows what's wrong with me, but you know, she, she didn't expect it to happen while watching a CW show because she knows I'm not into this, these Arrowverse things. So she was very surprised at how intently I was watching. And for all of a sudden, for me to be looking like I'm on the verge of tears, you know, she was, she did not expect that. But watching the scene, hearing Brandon and hearing how he's matured. You know, Ralph as an actor has really grown by leaps and bounds since 2006. You know, it's amazing to hear how he's sort of grown and aged into the role. He sounds so much more like confident and sure of himself now. Because you know, that's an interesting thing about Superman Returns. I, I don't remember where I heard this, but I remember basically finding out that a lot of the early scenes that we see of, of Brandon Ralph at the farm on Smallville and all that sort of stuff, you know, when he's kind of getting reacquainted with Earth, that was actually some of his very first stuff that he shot. And, you know, and that's rare. You know, films are always shot out of sequence. You know, sometimes an actor could show up to set and their first day on set, they have to film their big third act scene, you know, and then later on they film their introduction and, they, and, they, and then the whole thing gets pieced together in the editing room. But actors, you know, rarely go through the story chronologically, which is pretty amazing too when you think about the performances. Like when you see a great masterful acting performance and you realize that this actor had to be able to jump to each one of those scenes at totally different times throughout the film's production cycle and make one coherent perfect performance like it's it's unbelievable what actors do but anyway Brandon Routh's you work on Superman Returns almost happened chronologically and because of that, I've always said that as the movie wears on, you see his acting get better. You know, I swear, if you were to go back and watch Superman Returns, which I am going to be doing soon, um, if you go back and watch it, in those first few scenes, he's almost a little like timid, even in the scenes at the planet. Like he, he wasn't timid like Clark would be timid. He seemed like an actor who was a little bit out of his league. And you know, he kind of was, right? He was a no-name actor who didn't, unlike Reeve, who had already had a lot of experience in doing, he'd done soap operas, he'd done stage, he was a serious trained actor. Brandon Routh didn't come with that sort of built-in experience. So all of a sudden, he goes from being a guy who'd had some bit parts here and there, and who's just a young, very pretty face to most people, and suddenly going, okay, you are now going to be the centerpiece of a $250 million relaunch of Superman. You're going to be the Superman for a whole new generation. You know, and you can't blame them. There's probably pressure. There's probably nerves. There's, you know, the, who knows what it was. 
But when you watch his early scenes, and it, he seems a little bit like he's nibbling at the part a little bit. He's not quite self-assured. He's not owning it. And who knows, maybe it's because he wasn't sure if he could take ownership of it or if he had to try to ape Christopher Reeve. Maybe it's it was Brian Singer's fault as a director. Whatever the case may be, by the end of the movie, some of his later scenes and some of the stuff that he shot while now, you know, full in full swing of the production, getting more and more comfortable with playing this part... His acting grew quite a bit by the end of the film. And to now see that here we are 13 years later, and it's grown even that much more to now where it's like, this guy was absolutely born to play Superman. You know, you could argue in 06, or I could have argued in 06, that the main reason he got it was, was a, because of a resemblance to Christopher Reeve. You know, you could argue that because, you know, that, that, that was kind of like the narrative, right? Like he was hired because he looked like Reeve and they wanted to continue the Reeve mythology. But now with all of that kind of being 13 years ago and, and it's kind of feeling like a new era, you see this guy was born to play Superman regardless of his resemblance to Reeve. He really like his Clark felt right. His Superman felt right. It was just, it was just such a treat. And I never thought I'd get to see it. You know, you got to understand, folks. There are some of you who are going through a hell of a tough time right now pulling for Henry Cavill Superman. You know, you saw Man of Steel in 2013, and maybe that's the version of the character that resonated the most with you, right? And now you've spent these last few years waiting, longing, yearning, screaming, scratching your head, going, where is my Man of Steel sequel? Why, why is this taking so long? Or why does it look like now they're not going to proceed? There, there was no reason to cancel where they were going. And a, a sequel could have absolutely, you know, built on the first one and taken us into a new direction. You know, so I, I, a lot of you are feeling that way now about Henry Cavill. And now imagine you've been feeling that way, and rather than it being for the last six years, because Man of Steel came out in 2013, imagine if you felt that way since 2006. Because for 13 years, I've been going through the same thing. And I had pretty much had to let go of mine. You know, I eventually, about four years after Superman Returns came out, after a lot of potential things that look like it may be happening and little teases and little, you know, just crumbs that we were following at the time as fans trying to see, will we get to see Brandon Routh, the Superman again? Will Brian Singer make Man of Steel? You know, he, he was going to make a sequel called Man of Steel, which was going to have a lot more action adventure. It was going to be the Wrath of Khan of Superman movies. You know, he was pulling a nice Star Trek analogy out there about it was going to be this big thing with lots of action and spectacle and an alien invasion and probably Brainiac. You know, so I'm over here waiting for that Man of Steel movie to happen so that we can finally move on from Superman Returns, which everyone felt was too slow and too nostalgic and too much of a retread. I'm like, okay, I see your points, but in a sequel, it sounds like we're going to get something wildly different. So let's just get to that sequel. Let's, you know, let's change the subject already. When is Man of Steel going to enter production? And then what happened? You know, it just, it went nowhere. 
It went nowhere after years of little stops and starts and teases from screenwriter Michael Doherty and Brandon Routh still talking about returning to the role even two years later in 08. You know, there were all these moments where I thought, okay, my sequel is coming, and it never happened. And then all of a sudden, when a new Superman movie was announced, it was going to be a fresh start, a new actor, a new timeline, new continuity, and the Superman that I had been following for all of my life was now gone. And that's okay. You know, it, have it end, you know, it, things, ha things coming to an end are totally fine, but it's, it's best when you know it's coming, right? Like right now, you know, Star Wars fans, we know that the Skywalker saga is ending. So we're going to go into episode nine, appreciating this as the finale of this franchise. You know, love it or hate it, no matter where, what you feel about these last eight episodes and who directed them and the different things that have happened, no matter what, you're gonna probably go check out episode nine knowing, all right, well, this is it. This is the, this is the, the grand finale. Well, my Superman never got that, you know? And if you think about it, this really began for me in 1987. You know, I was only four years old but Christopher Reeve's Superman 4 came out, and listen, that was not a good movie, but when you're four, you don't know that. When, it, you know, when you're four, it's just Superman fighting this nuclear man guy, and it was a lot of fun. You know, I was a four-year-old kid, and that movie brought my imagination to life. It was the first time I sat in a movie theater and felt the power of cinema. As funny as it sounds for a movie as crappy as Superman 4, you know, to my little four-year-old brain, that was the height of everything. And naturally, I was waiting for Superman 5, you know? And Superman 5 didn't come. And then seven years later, I hear that they might make a Superman Lives. And all of a sudden, oh, okay, so I guess the Superman 5 isn't happening. And so began this entire crazy roller coaster ride of the last 25 years that went from Superman 5 becoming Superman Lives, becoming Superman Flyby, becoming Batman versus Superman, becoming Superman Returns, which was going to give us a Man of Steel, but then Man of Steel, rather than becoming a sequel to Superman Returns, became a reboot. Like, it's been... And, you know, it's been a very interesting last quarter century to be a Superman fan. And that's all to say that when I say Brandon Ralph is my Superman, when I say that Christopher Reeve is my Superman, when I'm, when I'm talking about that interpretation of Superman being my Superman, that's not an attack on other versions you know, some people use that so that they can be a gatekeeper. You know, some people will use that like not my Superman as a way to like decry the current Superman and to try to judge and critique and, and you know, sort of in a way, um, you know, just bash another Superman. And for me, it's not so much about that. It isn't that at all, honestly. It's this is the Superman I grew up with. This is the version of Superman that made me fall in love with the character. These ideals, this portrayal, this version of the character is the one that grabbed me, it grabbed my imagination when I was four and has carried me straight on through today. So when I watched 
the crisis on infinite earths part two yesterday, it was, it was magical to me to he, to see him there, to hear the music again, to hear, to, to see the character portrayed in a way that was true to the way that I knew him and loved him was just amazing. And then, and then like the little Easter eggs, like where he says, um, actually, this is the second time I've gone nuts and fought myself, which once again, you know, if you were, if you weren't sure that this was supposed to be the same Superman from Superman, the movie, this confirms it. Cause remember in Superman three, he goes nuts and fights himself. He, he fight Clark fights Superman, dark drunk Superman in that, in that trash yard. And for them to acknowledge that is pretty awesome, you know? And somebody brought up yesterday, uh, Caesar, Caesar on Twitter brought up that, um, you know, technically, isn't that like a, a plot hole? You know, what, what didn't Superman 3 supposedly not happen? Wasn't Super, uh, Superman Returns supposed to be the new Superman 3? And yeah, I guess technically, but if you think about it, you know, just like I told Caesar, Superman 3 had such a little impact on the overall Superman mythology and in general was such like a weird little oddity, little side quest goofball comedy <laughs> that it almost, it could have happened whenever. You know, that, that, that story could have happened after Superman 2, but before he got that, you know, uh, the information that Krypton might have survived thus facilitating his desire to go find it, which gave us the setup for Superman Returns. You know, somewhere between finding out that Krypton may have survived and the end of Superman 2, Superman 3 could have happened. You know, Superman 4 probably couldn't have, right? Superman 4 relied on there being an older, wiser Kal-El. You know, the, Christopher Reeve and the way they approached that story, even though, you know, unfortunately, they didn't have the budget or the people behind it to really make it what it could have been, but at the time, he was trying to show an older, more seasoned veteran Superman who, rather than try to solve the world's problems, tries more to inspire the people to take action. And he tries to call an end to nuclear war. And he, it, it's, it, he's supposed to be older. And by the way, just in talking about that, it is funny to think about how that ties into what I brought up earlier in this episode about how the movies can talk about real life and possibly inspire you to want to deal with those issues in real life. And in that sense, you could argue that Superman 4 attempted to share Superman ideology with an entire generation of fans who hopefully went on from there to think that nuclear war sucks and that we should all be working together and that the world works better when we're not at each other's throats and we're working as a team. So even in that crappy Superman movie, there's stuff in there that's inherently Superman that crosses over from the fictional world to hopefully inspire you, the viewer, to look at things differently through a slightly more you know, mature and educated lens. But I digress. So Superman 4 couldn't have happened. But Superman 3, I'm pretty sure it could have happened. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good with Ralph, uh, you know, with Superman on, on in the Arrowverse, acknowledging that the two, you know, he once went nuts and fought himself, all right? Um, and just in general, it was crazy. When he turns evil and he has the crazy brawl with, with Tyler Hoechlin's Superman and they're fighting on top of the big golden globe on top of the Daily Planet, I mean, this was like, there was just so much fan service 
throughout the whole episode, which even though I was skimming, you know, even though I'm not an Arrowverse person, I do have to hand it to Mark Guggenheim and Greg Berlanti and all these people because the amount of fan service is pretty jaw-dropping. And, you know, I... I don't know how it is for you guys who watch the shows, you know, religiously. I don't know if, if these types of episodes feel like a detour for you, where it's just all bells and whistles and trying to impress schmucks like me. <laughs> and so I don't know if these episodes really, you know, exemplify your favorite Arrowverse moments. But to me, as an outsider, as a tourist, just dropping into this world for a little while, I love all the fan service. So yeah, watching... First of all, when when they play the John Williams Superman march as as Ralph turns into Superman, and then Hoechlin turns into Superman and it morphs into his Superman theme, I thought that was so cool. I thought that was a great little touch, and it is a way to show some respect to the Tyler Hoechlin Superman, though, who are we kidding? As soon as he's on screen sharing a screen with Brandon Ralph, you look at these two and one of them screams, Superman! And the other one, you know, looks, you know. Listen, I don't, I don't want to throw dirt on Tyler Hoechlin, Superman. But you put him next to Ralph and it, to me it's just, there's no, there's no comparison whatsoever. But that whole sequence and then so when he turns evil and they start fighting and, you, and, and you're hearing the music, it's just, I was... Uh, I was overwhelmed. My, my fanboy senses were not, were not ready for how gloriously uh, Ralph was going to get to relive this role and, and, re, and bring like new energy to it. You know, not to mention we got to see him fly and he looks good flying. And that's a big deal because what, what I mean by that is I always felt like in Superman Returns, he looked awkward. He, it looked like he, uh, th there's a couple of good shots, but there's lots where he clearly looks like a dude standing on a box and the camera's over his head aimed down because his feet are almost flat looking like he's on the box instead of being on tippy toe and his body doesn't look like it's extended all the way. He looks like a guy who's just standing there with his arm up. You know, that was something that always frustrated me. The flying shots in Superman Returns were such a letdown. And so many of the good ones were pure CG. And you could kind of tell, and it's a bummer. That's why in this, you know, in this Crisis on Infinite Earths thing, you know, Brandon actually got to look pretty badass flying around as Superman. And I know that they had like a crappy, you know, CGI version also for some of the fighting. It is what it is. You know, Arrowverse, they have a very limited budget and I thought they, they made the most of it. But getting to see Brandon Routh flying around looking like a badass Superman, which is something he never really got to do in Superman Returns. I mean, that was such a trip. That was such a joy. And then in the next episode, they take it even farther, where rather than just, you know, give us this reintroduction to him as Superman, we also kind of get to see him do some cool Superman stuff, because I was worried about that. You know, in episode two, where he turns evil, I'm like, oh, are they just, are, are, is, is the only Ralph Superman stuff we're going to get to see really be him, like, brainwashed by Lex Luthor? I was really anxious about that. And even at the end of episode two, you know, when, when he's turned back into good Clark, you know, we don't see him flying around doing anything. He's just walking around doing the scenes. And I was a little bit like, oh, no, are we not going to get to see Superman be Superman anymore? 
But in, in, the, in the third episode, I'm not spoiling anything, but like he has like one moment really where his, you know, where, where, where he speaks about a situation that's happened and he imparts some wisdom and, and, and talks about the hope existing even in the darkest of times. And Ralph delivered the line so well and looked so amazing in that damn costume. That it was just like, yes, that's Superman. It, it just, I, I, this is such a treat for me. And I, 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 I'm pinching myself. And honestly, it sounds like Ralph is also pinching himself. Uh, <laughs> listener to the show, Chris Roach, contacted me recently because he actually had a chance to chat with Ralph. It wasn't like a formal interview or anything like that. He's not in that world. But he bumped into him at, you know, at his work. And now, you know, with his permission, I'm going to relay to you what Brandon told him. So first things first, he said that Brandon comes off as a really wonderful, kind, nice guy. He, he, he seems in person like his Clark Kent, very just amiable and kind and warm and gracious. And amongst the things that he shared with Chris was his feeling that the suit that he's wearing for the Arrowverse crossover that he's doing right now is, quote unquote, the best Superman suit that's ever been on screen. And uh, you know what? He may not be wrong. You know, looking at it, I do love that suit. You know, I'm, not, I'm not infatuated with the cape. You know, I would fix the cape. But in terms of like a classic Superman suit, I think that about nails it. You know, I, I'm still partial in terms of like live action, you know, uh, updating the suit and all that sort of stuff. I still think um, the suit that Henry Cavill wore in Batman v Superman is arguably the uh, the best uh, modern Superman costume. But in terms of just overall vintage Superman, I mean, he may be right. You know, you swap out that Kingdom Come crest for a more traditional S and that suit is unbelievable and he could use it on a new show or movie tomorrow, if you ask me, with a better cape again. But, um, okay, so he loves the suit and he also told him this. He told him that this opportunity to revisit Superman as part of Crisis on Infinite Earths gave him some much needed closure and eased some of the hurt he had been holding onto from the past. And that's very bittersweet for me to hear, you know, because... I guess it should be expected, but, you know, to hear how hard it must have been on him, you know, it's it's tough as a fan because, remember, th there were lots of people like me who were rooting for him, who wanted him to get his Man of Steel, who wanted him to get that Wrath of Khan sequel that would further cement him as this generation Superman and address the qualms people had about the last movie. Remember, that was the thing. People didn't like the last movie because of how closely it stuck to the first movie, you know, the Superman, the movie, and the fact that, like, you know, he didn't punch anything, there wasn't a lot of huge actions and spectacle, aside from that unbelievable airplane rescue, which to me is still some of the best uh, Superman storytelling ever committed to, to, to film. But, yeah, you know, overall, the knocks on Superman Returns were that it was too nostalgic, too slow and not enough action, and by all accounts, the Man of Steel sequel that Brian Singer would have made at the time would have been amazing. It would have been none of those things. It would have been an action-adventure movie. It would have been to Superman Returns what X2 was to X1. You know, remember what a leap 
things took between X1 and X2. And I know that by now, you know, things have gone, you know, the entire comic book movie industry has exploded since then. And, you know, X2 has probably been surpassed a number of times by now. But at the time, X2 was a bit of a revelation. And considering it came from the same director and had the same cast, it was very notable how much of an acceleration of things it was from the previous film. You know, so Singer had already kind of shown that with his first movie, he likes to set the table, let you understand the basic rules and dynamics of the story he wants to tell. And then in the sequel is where he goes balls to the wall and, you know, it gives you uh, the next escalation of that story, of that experience with these characters that you've now become acquainted or in the case of Superman Returns, you know, reacquainted with. So... For all of us fans who wanted him to get the chance to show what he could really do in something that was less of a retread, in something that wasn't as slow-paced and nostalgic and, and reminiscent of something that had come 20 years prior, you know, it's, it had to be hard for Brandon to know, like, but I can do better. You know, the, the, people's complaints about this movie are things I had nothing to do with. You know, Brandon, it wasn't Brandon's call how much action was in the movie. It wasn't Brandon's call how much the script adhered to the basic structure of Superman Returns. It wasn't Brandon's call to really kind of like make his his per portrayal of Superman kind of a, you know, a, a copy of someone else's version in a way. So the fact that he never got that sequel must have sucked. And especially to see that opportunity and all the potential that came with possibly becoming this next generation Superman, to see that all just disappear for things out of your control had to have really sucked, you know? And I remember him talking about it years after the fact, still being hopeful of there being a sequel. And then, you know, Man of Steel was announced and that was the end of that. And to hear that he told Chris that, you know, this experience gave him some closure because he did indeed, you know, he had been holding on to some hurt about what had happened in the past. You know, that was really kind of moving for me to hear. And then, you know, this probably shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. But, you know, Chris also mentioned that it would be excellent if he could get his own spinoff on HBO Max. And Ralph responded, you know, I didn't even know what HBO Max really was until recently. I guess WB owns it. I'd love to have that talk. And hey, I'm currently available. So it sounds like he's definitely interested to do more Superman. He would totally be down. And I guess that shouldn't be a surprise. But, you know, I hope he gets that chance. I don't know. I don't know where it would be, what form it would take. I would really hope that it would be on HBO Max as well, you know, because if he gets a chance to do this again, I want it to feel more like Watchmen than it does your average uh, CW show, you know? And again, that's not a knock on the Arrowverse. They're doing something extremely, exceedingly successful there. It's just not necessarily my thing, you know? It doesn't, when I'm flipping channels and I see an Arrowverse show, I just kind of keep going because it's not really my world. But if it was done a little more seriously, with a little more production value, with some real kind of... Um, almost Hollywood level filmmaking going on, I, you know, then it would be a whole other story. And that's what I want for Superman. So if he were to get a chance to do it again, I would hope 
that it would be as part of HBO Max or possibly even as an Elseworlds movie. You know, if they were thinking of that sort of thing, you know, since since Joker kind of paved the way now for these standalone DC stories that exist in a vacuum somewhere, what's to stop them from trying to do Kingdom Come starring Brandon Ralph? Or just to do some sort of isolated, you know, story starring his more grown-up Superman that perhaps, you know, brings, I don't know, I, I was going to say brings closure to the Reeve arc, but something interesting that's happened is that if you go back now and watch Superman Returns knowing what you know, in a way it does serve as a finale to the Reeve Superman. You know, it wasn't the plan, but in a way it sort of works. Because one of the themes of Superman 1 and 2, one of the big over, you know, underlying themes that, that Donner and Mankiewicz really tried to you know, put in there and that Reeve played so wonderfully, was Superman's loneliness, his isolation, his feeling of, I'm the Earth's greatest savior, but I'll never be one of them. And this is someone who grew up wanting to be one of them, wanting to be just one of the boys and get the girl and, and play football with his, with his classmates and just be normal, be a regular kid. And then he found out that, no, he pretty much has a responsibility to be Earth's greatest protector. And, you know, the Donner films really sort of explored this idea of his loneliness, whether you realize it or not. It's funny because those movies get knocked for being, quote unquote, corny and campy and yada, yada, yada. But really, if you pay attention, there's a real sort of meaty, layered arc in there for Superman. As you see in Superman 2, where he relinquishes his powers just so he could spend a life with Lois. I mean, it's just like what happened with Welling's Superman from Smallville, apparently, according to that little cameo they gave him in episode two of this Arrowverse crossover. You know, he ultimately turned away from it because he wanted to just be a regular man and marry Lois and have a family and do that thing. And Donner, you know, the Donner Superman... You know, he he toyed with that idea until ultimately he had to return. He had to put the cape on and he had to decide, all right, the, 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 the needs of the earth are greater than my needs. You know, and that's probably why when he heard about that Krypton might have survived and maybe he's not so alone and maybe there are others like him out there, he went to go check. You know, that was the premise of Superman Returns. And that's something that wasn't really developed enough in the movie itself. They never really explained, and he never really spoke of why it was so important to him to find his relatives, or perhaps maybe his parents are still alive, or at the very least he could meet people who could teach him about his, his, you know, his ancestry, and he wouldn't feel so just kind of out on his own all the time. But Superman Returns... The way it kind of closes that loop is he discovered that Krypton really is gone. But when he returns, he finds out that his love, the, the person who connects him to humanity, has his son. He has a son who's half human, half Kryptonian, who now for the rest of his life, he'll be able to watch this boy grow and experience life on earth through his eyes. Maybe his son wouldn't have to deal with this crushing responsibility of having to be everyone's savior and could just have a normal life. 
You know, that's why that speech at the end when he's speaking to Jason is very moving. And the fact that he's echoing, you know, what his father that, you know, th- what his father Jorel told him in those crystals and what he told him back when he was an infant about to be sent to earth. You know, it's all just very, it's powerful. And in a way, that closing of Superman Returns where he acknowledges to Lois that he's not going anywhere. He'll always be around and he'll be here to help her with their child. And then he flies off into the sunset. That is kind of the ultimate send-off for the Reeve Superman. So this is all to say, well, there's been lots of tangents on this episode. I'm sorry I have like ADD this, this, this episode. I'm just kind of all over the place. But this is all to say, that whole tangent was to say that maybe Ralph can get a movie and no, I guess it wouldn't have to tie into the Reeve continuity. It could just be a standalone thing about a Superman that he's playing because technically I do feel now in hindsight that the Reeve Superman got to fly off into the sunset. He got to look into the camera one last time and smile and fly away before the credits roll. That was a wrap on that Superman at the movies. Um, So we don't really need more of that, I don't think. You know, what we do need is more Brandon Routh as Superman, period. And I think that this reemergence of him in the role has only proven that for many of you who now, I've I've seen a lot of response online where people are going, wow, you know, the, the issues with Superman Returns are now confirmed to not have been any of Brandon Routh's doing because he's wonderful and with the right script and the right situation, He's absolutely just, he was born to be Superman. And I'm just really glad, I'm thrilled that he got another chance to do it. Um, Just like I'm sure Ezra Miller fans are going to be very happy that he's going to get a chance to play The Flash again. You know, while we're talking about these actors who've had to go into limbo after, you know, their first uh, forays into a character... You know, Ezra Miller has yet to get his solo movie, right? We got to know him finally, really, in Justice League after two quick cameos in BVS and Suicide Squad. But, you know, we got our first real taste of him in Justice League. And then what happened? You know, his film has been in limbo. He keeps losing directors. Uh, You know, you would be absolutely well within your rights to think that a solo Flash movie was just never going to happen. And, you know, Miller pretty much entered the same kind of limbo that Ralph did, right? Where it's like, well, when is my movie going to happen? Is my movie going to happen? Are we just rebooting and changing everything and now they're going to recast a new, you know, a new Flash? Well, apparently not. You know, remember a couple of weeks ago, Variety made the, uh, the claim that The Flash was a priority for Warner Brothers DC Film Division. And now that part of their report seems to have been confirmed because now they've given it a release date. Just like, you know, remember how I said uh, an episode or two ago that when a movie gets a release date, it really kind of makes it like a real thing because it means that you're lining your ducks up in a row. It means that you're getting the machine ready to go to set, and you're giving it a, a course. You're setting a course. And right now, they've set a course for July 1st, 2022. So we're still, what, you know, two and a half years away from that. But it looks like Ezra Miller will indeed get his shot to to make his Flash all that it can be. 
And that's pretty exciting. You know, I, I hope I hope it goes really well. You know, there, there's been lots of back and forth about what type of tone they want to strike, what type of movie this wants to be. Ezra Miller at one point was working on his own script with Grant Morrison. But now, you know, through the latest evolution of this project, we seem to have a flash film that's going to be directed by Andy Muschietti of, you know, It Chapters 1 and 2. And it's written by Christina Hodson. And, I, you know, the, the Hodson thing is interesting because, again, you know how we're talking about how DC and its shared universe, you know, we don't really know what the state of it is, but it seems like, you know, the, their general concept is much more like the X-Men model than the MCU model or even the old DCEU model. But it's still very notable that Hodson will now have scripted three of the upcoming DC movies. You know, assuming Batgirl ever happens, you know, she wrote Batgirl, she wrote Birds of Prey, and now she's writing The Flash. And you've got to think that if there's any hope for synergy within these projects, for those of you who want synergy, you know, having Christina Hodson's name on all of these scripts seems to, you know, it, it gives some credence or some legitimacy to the idea that, you know, it's not a completely disconnected standalone franchise like everyone, you know, seems to want to tell you. You know, there, there, there are still going to be links, but it's going to be interesting to see how overt they are in the future. And, you know, kind of circling back to what I discussed at the end of last week's episode, you know, it's just interesting that, you know, to have all of these Bat-universe characters exist in a universe that currently has no Batman in it. Because remember, Affleck has been, you know, recast as ba as Robert Pattinson, and this Batman will not conceivably be part of any of these franchises. You know, he's going to be in its own in his own little world. And kind of caught in the crossfire there are characters like Batgirl and characters like even Nightwing. You know, these are all characters that were supposedly going to be getting their movies and they, they had hired people to start developing them. And then they've kind of, you know, stalled out and disappeared for now. But you've got to imagine if they want to make a Batgirl movie, the Batgirl movie is probably going to be some sort of extension of what we see in Birds of Prey, right? You know, she has ties to a lot of these characters. You know, and there's even there's talk about them trying to make a Gotham City Sirens movie. Like, if they want to get Batgirl in on the action here, how do they introduce her without having any kind of Batman around? You know, and then which Gordon is she going to have ties to? Is it going to be the Jeffrey Wright Gordon that we're meeting in this standalone Matt Reeves Batman universe? Or is it the J.K. Simmons Gordon that we met in Justice League? You know, so there are characters here that are sort of just innocent bystanders in this weird, you know, divorce within the DCEU where now Batman is going off on his own and is unrelated while all these other Bat-centric films are still on the way. It's just, it's going to be very interesting to see how they deal with stuff like that because even with the X-Men model that they seem to be sort of aping where the canon is very fluid... You know, it just, it, it, it begs the question, how do you make a Batgirl or a Nightwing movie 
And which universe do you set it in? Do you set it in Matt Reeves' universe or do you set it in the Harley-verse? You know, and, and, that, and the, the, the verse that, that kind of is spinning off of the Suicide Squad stuff. Um, it's just going to be very fascinating to see these next few years, kind of how they do that and how much the general audience cares and how much us hardcore fans care. You know, because when it comes to like this two Batman idea I had, you know, people seem pretty split on it. And I wonder then, you know, if you don't want two Batman, then would you just accept Robert Pattinson just kind of being brought into this mainline continuity, you know, after his Reeves trilogy has occurred in theory, you know? Would you one day accept seeing Pattinson stand alongside Gal Gadot and Ezra Miller and Jason Momoa and, you know, any uh, Jared Leto's Joker, you know, would, would you accept that? Or do you need some sort of big storyline explanation? Or would you rather they just bring in a new actor who could basically be a stand-in for Batfleck in these, you know, continued DCEU adventures that continue to linger on and will continue to linger on at least through 2022 now that that's when The Flash is coming out and Aquaman comes out that year too. So we know the DCEU and its remnants aren't going anywhere. So with that in mind, does it behoove the studio to get us another Batman who could exist in those movies for plot-driven cameos and such? Or do they just fold in the Robert Pattinson universe into this one and just kind of expect us all to act like that's normal and fine and maybe we would? You know, there have been weird situations before. You know, when Batman Forever came out, it was drastically different than Batman Returns and had, you know, and yet we still kind of accepted that this was a continuation of the Keaton Batman. Harvey Dent went from being Billy D. Williams to Tommy Lee Jones and no one really batted an eyelash about it. So maybe we could accept that Commissioner Gordon has gone from J.K. Simmons to Jeffrey Wright. I don't know. You know, it's, again... It's going to be very interesting to see how the folks calling the shots treat the connectivity, the shared canon, and the synergy between all these projects. Because something is just becoming exceedingly clear. With this announcement of The Flash coming out in 2022, it's, it's, what's becoming exceedingly clear is that it's getting weird that the Batman is totally on its own. It made sense... You know, maybe a year ago when, when there was this idea that maybe everything is splitting up and that the DCEU, as we know it, is really getting a very obvious reboot. But with Gal Gadot still out there, with Jason Momoa still out there, with Ezra Miller still out there, with Harley Quinn still out there, all of the seeds that were planted in 2016 across BVS and Suicide Squad are still being further developed. So this is, you know, the, the, the Batman being in its own little corner and not playing well with others is going to become more obvious as time wears on. And I can't wait to de you know, <laughs> deliver another 105 episodes of the Fanboy Podcast discussing all of the different fallout of what's gone on these last few years and how it continues to evolve in the years to come. So everyone, thanks for, for joining me once again. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving me a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts to keep this the top fanboy podcast 
on all of Apple Podcasts. All right, everyone. So thank you. Until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios. Adios.